This is Many Voices, One World. I'm your host, George Pompeianis. Today, we continue in our series of One Planet, One Ocean with Dr. Laura Kong, who is the director of the International Tsunami Information Center. Dr. Kong, welcome to Many Voices, One World. Thank you. Tsunami. Just the word alone makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Wall of water traveling across the ocean, potentially at the speed of an airplane, heading for land. What happens? Well, you know, tsunamis are, are, are what we call long wave ocean waves. Um, and what that means is they're, they're um, governed by the laws of physics. And in the deep ocean, yes, they are going at jetliner speeds, but they're only about uh, a meter high or not even a meter high. So if you're in a, in a, a, a cruise liner, you would probably not even know that a, a tsunami was, was under you. But what happens when you get to the shore is um, all that energy um, has to be conserved and then um, the wavelengths shrink, and that's when the wave grows. And the wave grows to, you know, tens of meters. And the things we saw after 2011 in Japan, um, those unbelievable walls of water that, that, that consumed um, homes, buildings, cars, cargo ships, um, that's when it gets really scary. Um, and, and, you know, we, we want to um, make sure we can save everyone's life um, and that's the the most important um, uh, aspect here um, but we know um, those those waves are going to be very dangerous and they're going to cause a lot of damage to to property and, and infrastructure and and uh, pretty scary business um, but um, we know what will happen um, we've seen tsunamis you know from 2004 in very, very graphic detail and video. Um, we've studied them. Our engineers, our, our tsunami modelers have done a lot of work. So we have an idea of what to expect. Um, and, and everyone has probably seen all the videos. So I think we're at a point where um, we ought to be prepared and we ought to know what will happen to us and we should get out of harm's way. We shouldn't have people, I would say, you know, perishing from tsunamis what what put you though in the middle of this uh, how did you become so vested in in preparedness mitigation um and now today you know the executive director of the of the uh, tsunami information center the international center um how did you get here well um, my background is is um I'm, I'm a scientist by background. I'm actually a, uh, what's called a seismologist. So, so my background is actually in earthquakes. And, and if you're aware, something like 80% of, of the, the world's um, observed tsunamis that are fatal or dangerous are caused by earthquakes. So, so naturally, it was, a, it was an extension of what I was studying as uh, a phenomenon generated by earthquakes and and I think, like like you mentioned, tsunamis hair off the the back of your your, your neck. 
Um, you know, I was also one of those who, who was looking at movies, which are a little bit um, sensationalist, but also those educational movies that said um, these are waves generated by earthquakes. So it's kind of a, a natural uh, inquisition uh, in, uh, of what is this mm-hmm. and what causes this and, and whether there's anything I can study to understand it more. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as, as luck would have it, as most, in many ways, most careers are, there just happened to be a, a position open at, at the Tsunami Warning Center in, in, in Hawaii. And so here I was, a, a seismologist, um, earthquakes caused tsunamis, there was a position open, and, and I was actually a, a watchstander at the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center when I first started. And that's in, and so you're based in Honolulu. I'm based in Honolulu, correct. And the center itself has a long history in terms of uh, of being among the first, if not the first, tsunami centers, mm-hmm. early warning centers. Is that correct? Yes. So, so the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center has been around since 1948, 1949, and it was um, started as uh, a response to we had something called the April Fools. Tsunami. It was on April 1, 1946, and uh, off in the Aleutians in Alaska. And, and, and during that event, which was right offshore, um, something like a 125-foot wave basically um, uh, crushed a lighthouse. And, and at that lighthouse, there were a number of people on duty who were just playing cards that night, and they didn't know what happened. Um, but in addition to Alaska, that wave went all the way south about four or four and a half hours later and hit Hawaii, causing deaths. And, and, and so the response after that was, how can we prevent this? Can we prevent this? And, and knowing these tsunamis took four hours to get there, that's enough time if we know an earthquake has, has happened to actually warn someone. So that was the, the start of the U.S. system. Um, but at the same time, Japan has had tsunamis for many, many, many years, decades, thousands of years, and they have uh, national systems as well to, to warn their people against tsunamis. And, and the center now is a global center, really, as part of the uh, global system of, uh, of uh, tsunami early warning, uh, something that is, of course, uh, related to the work that happens here, coordinated in part by mm-hmm. the UNESCO Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission. Um, but um, where, where, where did that transition come from? From going from the Pacific to, was it something in fact that was the result of, of being then embraced by the IOC? So, so the the largest ever um, instrumentally recorded earthquake um, was a magnitude nine point five. It was in nineteen sixty in Chile, and that also caused a tsunami, and it went, caused a tsunami that hit us not only in Hawaii about fifteen hours later, but it went all the way across. The Pacific and hit Japan, killed about 140 people about 20, 20, 23 hours later, and also caused uh, deaths in the Philippines. So that that very event um, in 1960, and, and, and that was at this time the IOC had just started, uh, but a, there were a number of, of very passionate scientists, um, uh, founding Canadians, Russian, Japanese, Americans, uh, Chileans who got together as scientists who wanted to do something to help. And they together put together the science requirements and background to create a warning system 
and they worked it not only from um, the science background, but through the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission. And so um, by the time 1965 came about, um, the international system for the Pacific was established under the auspices of the IOC. Okay, and the IOC being the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission, Correct. which is here at uh, UNESCO. Um, and in fact, not to get too caught up in titles and names, but this is your work is also within the context of the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, uh, which is part of the of the U.S. Um, the U.S. government system, um, and that has been since the beginning. Yeah. So, so as I as you recall, when we talked about the the first system in the United States. Um, was the after the it was in 1948, um, and that was called um, uh, the. It was the forerunner of of of. Well, it was actually called the Honolulu Observatory, mm-hmm. and the Honolulu Observatory, um, which then became the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, which is known now. Um, when the IOC established the uh, Pacific Tsunami Warning System, the United States agreed to host. Uh, using its existing services of the Pacific Tsunami Warning System Center um, as a contribution to the international system. So both uh, what we call PTWC as well as ITIC, and I'm the the director. PTWC. PTWC. Which means? Which means the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center. Okay. Okay, it's, it's based in Honolulu. And ITIC is the international? ITIC is the international... Tsunami Information Center. Um, we were both established in 1965 um, through, and and the, at that time, uh, the United States agreed to host. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been a very long, I think, productive, and I think, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, beneficial um, collaboration. What's a safe ocean look to you? What does it look like? What's <laughs> from your perspective, I know I, what it looks like to my perspective, yep. but from your perspective, what's a safe ocean? So I, I think a safe ocean um, is really one where, you know, your family, my family, our kids, our friends, our neighbors feel like they can enjoy the coast um, without being scared that something will happen that they have no control over. So... So what does that mean for for tsunamis? I mean, tsunamis you've just said is a can be very very scary, very very dangerous. It means for us that we have um, both a a population, a community, a, a person on the beach who who knows what a tsunami is, and knows what it can do, and knows um, what we call the natural tsunami warning signs. Who's and they're ready for the tsunami. So that if, if there are these natural warning signs, which would be um, a big earthquake where you can't stand or uh, um, the water, what we call receding or, or going back into the ocean so you can see fish flopping. Or maybe you hear these big roar like a jet airplane or a train. It's usually the water coming in. If you see or hear these natural warning signs, you as a person on the beach would know a tsunami might come, and, and we we need to, to evacuate. But at the same time, if if you know you can get tsunamis that go across the Pacific or across the Indian Ocean, 
We need a warning system that can tell everyone there's something that happened um, 5,000 kilometers away. Um, we're monitoring it. We know a wave's been generated. Um, you've got to be on the alert. So we need both a warning system, um, which is as well as a, a community that's ready, tsunami ready, right? Um, and they've got to work together. Um, and so it's been really, really, uh, I think, fortunate that um, at the international level under UNESCO and the, the IOC, um, we've been able to, to coordinate intergovernmentally, um, not only in the Pacific, but also in the Indian Ocean, in the Caribbean, in the Mediterranean, so that countries come together and they're aware of, of what our warning services are. Uh, we, want, we want to manage expectations, but they also are able to, to share experiences across oceans, especially when we're, we're talking about people who could be affected or have been affected by tsunamis. You're listening to Many Voices, One World. I'm your host, George Papayanis, and I'm speaking with Dr. Laura Kong, who is the director of the International Tsunami Information Center in Honolulu, also known as ITIC. Um, getting into the way that we recognize danger, the way we are prepared to deal with it, that comes under something that you're calling Tsunami Ready. It's actually, I guess, a project um, also being done in cooperation with the Inter Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission. So as you, you might guess, Tsunami Ready uh, means uh, you're hopefully ready for the next tsunami. And I think when we, when we say ready, we say um, it doesn't mean the tsunami is not going to come, right? And it doesn't mean that it might knock down a lot of buildings. But we are ready and we know what to expect and we've planned and prepared ourselves so we can get out of harm's way. Um, so the, the, the program, um, it's under a pilot stage right now, um, is an effort under the UNESCO IOC across all the oceans. Um, it's modeled after a, a similar tsunami-ready program that started in 2001 in the United States that was uh, pioneered by the National Weather Service. Um, but its goal is, is really aimed at communities to, to motivate them to be champions um, at their own community level uh, for the next tsunami. And, and what does that mean? It means um, the community has knows what its hazard is, so, so it knows its hazard and its risks. Um, it knows um, where to go, so um, can we predict how high the, f the waves will be and how, how much inland will the flooding go uh, and create evacuation maps or evacuation zones and make sure all of us know what, where to go. Um, can we make sure we've practiced so these tsunami exercises? Um, uh, for example, in the Caribbean, in the last few years, um, there's been such a, a unbelievably um, swell of participation at communities, something like hundreds of thousands across 46 countries that are participated in tsunami exercises. Was this a ready. trigger from 2004 from the, uh, uh, I, from the Indian Ocean? I think I think we all we all realize that um, before 2004, um, there wasn't um, except for us in the Pacific, there wasn't a lot of awareness of even what a tsunami was. 
Um, but after 2004, uh, something near, nearly 230,000 people lost their lives, 14 countries across the Indian Ocean. Nine hours after the wave was hit, um, the wave came. It was. Uh, it wasn't. It was a. Uh, it wasn't a. You won't call it a wake-up call, but it basically made um, everyone around the world take notice. Take notice, including those in in, in Europe. So, uh, the the frequency though must be a challenge. I mean, they're not happening every day. They're uh, especially. In, in, in a situation where you've got something that could be threatening, how do you combat against complacency? What, in, in terms of, and I, I would imagine that's one of the big concerns that you're trying to address with Tsunami Ready. Um, yes. So one of the, the um, I, I would say the very simple but very effective ways is, is essentially to remember it. So of and a lot of social scientists have said, you know, the most effective um, preparation is to remember what happened the last time and don't do it again. So um, starting in, you know, in Japan and in, 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 in over the years, um, in Chile, in, in especially in Indonesia, what we would say is interviewing um, people, they're survived, what have been their stories, um, of how they, what happened, and how, what, what would they recommend to the next person so they don't have, don't, you know, so they save their lives from, from tsunamis. Um, so, so oral traditions are very important, and we mm. have lots of stories of uh, grandfathers passing down to their grandchildren um, their memories of what happened in 1960, and and just that very passing on of information in a very informal way over the generations is is a way to remember that this is real. Um, but at the same time, we, we also have the, the more formal waves uh, of textbooks, of, mm -hmm. of uh, historical information, of of ways to simulate what can be expected. Passing on those, those stories, though, makes me think, I mean, how much are young people key to your tsunami-ready preparedness, um, you know, achieving those objectives? Well, a, a lot of tsunami-ready is, is a people effort, right? So it, it can be technical in the sense that we want a, a way to communicate information via radio or, or text or, or, or cell broadcast, things like that. It's technical, but the success of of anyone saving one's lives is really a, a people-centered system. Um, so social media and the things that these days bring people together and share information and, and generate a, a wave of, of wanting to, to to make a difference are ways that we we try to to encourage and motivate communities to um, take on that 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 risk and and do something about it themselves. Who is Tana? Tana is a um, is a essentially a game. Um, it's a, a a video game, so even better, um, and in a, on a mobile environment that allows you to basically simulate um, an earthquake and a tsunami and what happened and how to go about um, saving your 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 
whether it's your home or where yourself. So, so it's these uh, these electronic games, and and there is also one that was done um, by the the International Strategy for Disaster Reduction in in about 2006 or so that also tried to, in the way there is a there's a, a I think a game called Sim City, mm-hmm. um, but basically giving you some uh, resources and uh, and asking you. Um, how do I put my resources to some place, some, some parts, and then running a simulation and seeing whether um, you lived or died? So, so I think you know, games are, are one way of, of communicating information that I think maybe the, the younger generation um, can get engaged in. And I remember in the, in the reporting that happened um, long after the water had receded after the 2004 tsunami. All of this conversation about uh, the, prepare, the, the lack of preparedness, but also the lack of, of, of awareness around um, where buildings were placed, where hotels had their rooms, where, you know, the idea of proximity to the coastline was so paramount in terms of the, the visitor experience. But in terms of protecting um, lives, it was it was not in the right in you know in the right mindset. Have we seen, as many of those places needed to rebuild, that they have in fact learned a lesson? Um, I think in in general, for those places that were impacted, um, there are. Uh, there are actually, since uh, 2018, there are actually international building codes um, to, that are specific to tsunamis that helps us, um, helps engineers design uh, structures that, that will withstand um, tsunami tsunamis. Um, at the same time, uh, what we have known um, for many years, and, and I think you could think through this very um, simply, is um, tsunamis are walls of water, and so if the wa- if you let the water go through, then um, and you can be above the water, then clearly you should be safe as long as your building doesn't collapse. Um, so the ideas of of building back um, high enough over the over the land, either by, for example, in a hotel putting a parking lot um, or the open lobby area in a very open area so the water can actually go through or, or very simple means to, to actually mitigate mm-hmm. and, and still have your, your um, hotel on the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we've, we've been able to learn from what we saw in, in 2004 and certainly in 2010, and the engineers have, have come up with um, best advice about how to... To, to design a a build a building or a hotel to to be um, more resistant and at the same time we do have um, provisions um, actual uh, engineering requirements as well that's Laura Kong and she is the director of the tsunami information center I'm George Papianis and you're listening to many voices one world and uh, we are in a conversation about tsunamis as part of our uh, oceans uh, series that we uh, do with the Intergovernmental Oceanographic uh, Commission. It does seem, however, that 
even those plans that we saw would be appropriate post-2004, new data is constantly coming in. Climate change is telling us that we're seeing sea level rise. Um, there is, there, you know, are, are the givens now being scrambled and we have to reassess what are the, the givens? Uh, the, the the dependable truths and readjust around what's happening well in the climate and how climate mm-hmm. is, is is affecting sure, us sure. so climate change and sea level rise are, are making what used to be um, uh, habitable land uh, now flooded and what that means just for tsunamis is uh, it just, makes our, our what we call our mean sea level higher mm-hmm. right? um, so uh, it, does it make does it make the tsunami also more powerful it doesn't necessarily make I think the, the, the tsunami more powerful but by being the the sea level higher that once uh, place where the the extent that it flooded will now flood even more further inland so uh, uh, what what we have are are potentially even more vulnerable areas um, and more more vulnerable economically that that um, are now being uh, have a greater um, percent potential for flooding just because the the, the sea level is higher. Now, I, we already already know that um, there are probably some 700 million people around the world who are mm-hmm. in vulnerable right. places. Um, is 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 the the effects of climate change changing which of those are now more probable for um, a more destructive tsunami as a result of what we see with sea level rise and and other changes even the the fact that we have melting glaciers which seems to have an impact on on tsunamis which one would not actually think about as a direct correlation between the two. Well, so... so, so two questions just, there, I think. Is, so, so, it, so let me just say that tsunamis, of course, can be caused not only by earthquakes, but they actually can cause be caused by icebergs and so melting glaciers and, and actually a chunk of, uh, of, of, of ice that fell into the water can can cause a tsunami, and we've seen that in, in Greenland and, and other places. Um, but at the same time, your other question is, you know, how does, um, are, are, seven, are those 700 million people at even more risk from uh, tsunamis now than they, they were before? Um, th- those 700 million people, because of sea level rise, are, are just, now they have to move inland. So they've lost, and, and that's irrespective of whether a tsunami has come or not. Well, they will have to move inland. Well, they, yeah. they will have to mm-hmm. move inland. Um, but when a tsunami does come, um, uh, hopefully those people have moved further inland and, 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 and in some ways perhaps away from the coast, and maybe we will be more safer. Um, you know, certainly sea level rise means that uh, whole populations may be moving. So are you telling me this is the positive side of climate change? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know... Forcing uh, people uh, inland? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, the, the, if you were to go back into history, m- people moved towards the 
coast because of essentially the industrial revolution and and the fact that all the commerce was more towards the ocean right more things had to be were easier to get um, goods and services etc like that mm-hmm. um, now what we with climate change is telling that some place some places where we used to want to do business are no longer we're going to be there we have to move them inland um, presumably what what we all do is those harbors that are now flooded will just make new harbors inland so i wouldn't say that anything is changing um, there'll be different locations um, but what we can do um, is to um, plan where those locations um, might be less vulnerable to the next tsunami than than perhaps they are now and that would say you know don't put your port or your harbor in this location because um, it's going to be right at the, the 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 target of the tsunami from wherever. Or don't put your um, nuclear power plant, for example, here. Put it there. Uh, don't put your fuel depot here. Don't put your your power plant there. Um, so that's that's going to just hopefully change the way we we build next. Mm-hmm. Or this is what I would like. To happen as we, so, we build. I mean, in some ways, you're, it, what you're saying prompts my 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 next question, and, and maybe the question that we that we wrap up on, which is the fact that we have to we we have to look into the future. How much are you looking into the future? Ten years, twenty years, and what do you see that you need to bring to policymakers? to start thinking about and worrying about because there's that connection. The scientists all say this is going to happen and uh, then you turn to the policy people, you know, at at city government, at state Mm -hmm. government, at national governments, at provincial governments, and they're like, well, where's the money? What are we going to do? How do we handle that? So if you roll this out, what are some of the recommendations that you expect to be making in the next 10 years? So I think as we we plan for the next 100 years and the things we plan and create for that 50, 100 years are power plants, are airports, are are things that we transport goods. Um, We should be thinking about what the impacts of climate, sea level rise, as well as disasters, and, and it's not only tsunamis, it's cyclones, and maybe it's flooding, and maybe it's landslide. And we shouldn't build those things where there's a potential for that to happen. And it could be as simple as schools or police stations. We should be thinking about this, and we should maybe take heed of those planners that are that are thinking about these things. On the the other side, of course, is if it does happen, what can we do to warn people as soon as possible and for that and that soon as possible for a local tsunami could be minutes or it could be hours so if we have to do it in minutes what do we need we need um, sensors and the more sensors we can the better um, especially close to the source and and um, tsunamis usually occur in the ocean and and the ocean is is general not not where it's easy to put sensors. So what can we put that are on the ocean bottom? Things like smart cables, so cables um, with sensors on it. Um, uh, What can we do from a satellite perspective to to remote sense? So how can we warn faster? And then the last part of of is is a community. Um, 
you know, if, if there's only a couple minutes um, and our technology fails, um, we still have the, the human brain and all of our, our ability to sense what we should do and what we should not do. Um, all of us need to, 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 to be prepared and to know what to do. If, if all else fails, um, save your own life. So we've got to work on the people people part as as just as much or more as as the technical components. I think I think in in terms of uh, taking heed and and working towards this, I think some something that might give people a sense of um, of confidence that there is there are things happening. I know that even through the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission's tsunami work uh, work with you as well. There have been trainings uh, and activities in 127 countries. Mm-hmm. Some 1,700 people have been trained. Um, you know, as you were talking to us earlier about those people who are cognizant, aware, mm-hmm. and now vested as part of how we deal with these situations mm-hmm. should they happen to us. And I think that's a positive I, to take away. Yes. Yeah, so so um, I'm at the International Tsunami and Information Center, and um, it's the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission, so we're working at a very global scale, mm-hmm. a, a multinational scale, but every every one of these events is, is local or national, so we really need to have the people on the ground, in the country, in the community, as knowledgeable and as confident in, in preparing f- to what to do and how to respond as maybe we are. So um, that part about training and outreach and, and actually working with the people that are, are are going to be the ones confronting the 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 event in that moment. They've got to be the ones that, that uh, feel like they can handle it. Dr. Laura Kong, thanks so much for being with us and uh, enlightening us about the work that you're doing and what we're doing globally in order to uh, be aware of tsunamis, their uh, destructive force, but also how we can how we can be prepared for them when they happen. Appreciate your being with us. Thank you very much. Dr. Laura Kong is the director of the International Tsunami Information Center, part of the uh, uh, U.S.-based National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, you've been listening to Many Voices, One World. I'm George Pompeianus, and I want to wish you a great day, wherever you may be. <laughs>